Let's uh, take our scriptures and turn to the book of the Psalms, Psalm 36, Psalm number 36, again, one of the Davidic Psalms uh, that we have been given a blessing through to be able to have in the scripture, and this is, this is one that really doesn't deviate from the normal pattern of David. Uh, I don't know about you, if you've uh, read through the Psalms enough, you tend to see how David will bring up contrast, comparison and contrast uh, in the Psalms as he's going along, like a contrast between the wicked and the righteous, or the wicked and God and in his righteousness. Uh, and that's what we see here in Psalm number 36 is where there is again a contrast. He starts off right away uh, with descriptions of the actions of the wicked and tonight, though, we're going to look at the uh, contrast that he gives further down uh, in this psalm in a few select verses that we're going to look at tonight, uh, where in verses 5 through 7, he speaks about the wonder of our God. Uh, and and just, if you want to give a title uh, to the message, it would be that very thing right there, the wonder of our God. Uh, how many of you are familiar, and I know some of you, especially those involved in music, would probably be very familiar with this name, uh, but how many are familiar with the name of Samuel Davies? Okay, there's some hands, yeah. Uh, does anybody want to uh, tell us about Samuel Davies? I know that puts you on the spot. I'm not going to do that. Uh, Samuel Davies was a wonderful man of God. Um, he is actually an American, or he, he was an American, uh, during the colonial uh, era, uh, and he was a man that was, con is considered the father of Presbyterianism in the, the colony, now the state of Virginia. Uh, Davies had a massive impact on the slaves in the area uh, that uh, he lived in and preached in. Uh, and Davies was actually very well respected even amongst those that were of what was called the established church. The established church is what is presently known as the Anglican uh, or the Episcopalian church. The Anglican church was the established church in colonial America. Uh, church of England is, is what they would have recognized it as. But Davies would have been considered a dissenter. Uh, but yet, he was, as I said, well-respected amongst the established uh, uh, churches, even amongst the clergy, uh, because of his impact that he had for righteousness amongst the colonials in the colony of Virginia. And he was one of a few preachers that would purposely uh, go out and seek to minister as well as witness to and educate the blacks. And so again, when, when uh, uh, Davies, during his time on earth, which was not very long, uh, I, was, I was looking at this again and it, it just struck me anew that the man, I believe was only 38, maybe 37 years old when he died, uh, which wasn't, again, an uncommon thing back during this time. He, he would have been considered a mature individual at that point. Uh, but uh, Davies died as a result of receiving a smallpox injection, which was very new. Now, uh, Davies, again, was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and the, the fascinating fact is this, that Edwards died of the very same thing. He received a smallpox injection, and it was, again, because of how new it was, 
some people did very well with it and basically were inoculated the rest of their lives, but others contracted the smallpox and it killed them. Well, both Jonathan Edwards and Samuel Davies both died of this, and the interesting fact as well is they were both... Uh, they were both the presidents of Princeton uh, uh, University at the time when they received that smallpox injection and died. Uh, I believe Edwards uh, had only been the, the uh, president there at Princeton for three months when he passed away. And again, Davies uh, uh, also passed away from that injection. And again, those of you that are interested in that, it's, it's, it's rather a, a very... Um, if you want to think about it, disgusting way that they were inoculated, and I'm not going to go into that tonight, but if you're interested, go look it up. Uh, but yeah, it, it was something that because of, of how uh, uh, rancid and how just prevalent smallpox was that many people were hoping to be able to gain an inoculation and hopefully survive through it, but they took their chances, so to speak. Well, again, Davies, during his short life, was also a man that wrote some hymns. And one of the hymns that we have that uh, Davies wrote was the hymn, Great God of Wonders. And just a beautiful, majestic hymn that talks about the attributes of our God and just the wonder of God's grace in condescending to save mankind. And one of, one of the verses or one of the passages that I have no doubt that Davies had in mind when he would um, compose that piece of, or that, that uh, hymn, he was not the one that did the music, uh, but I have no doubt that he would look to passages such as Psalm 36, verses 5 to 7, where we see in, in, in a small crystallized form, just again, the wonder of our God. And so I want to look at that with you tonight. Let's uh, look there in Psalm 36, verses 5 to 7. David says, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Now, in those three verses, we actually have four attributes of God that are listed, and one of them is actually repeated, where we see that the author, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us, in verses 5 and 6, those four attributes. We have, first of all, the word mercy. Secondly, we see thy faithfulness. Then in verse 6, thy righteousness. And then in verse 6, thy judgments. And as I said, we see then the, the first one, thy mercy, repeated again in verse number 7, but it's in a different form. It's thy loving kindness. The, 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 the wonder that we have in our God is this, that he is inexhaustible. To understand. One of the beauties that we see of in glory and the glimpse that we have of what heaven is going to be like is this, that God is going to dwell with man and man is going to be enraptured with him and by him forever. And guess what, dear ones? We have the joy of being able to start now. 
You can't help but think about what David says here, that this man is just not caught up, almost like Paul, to the third heaven, as he speaks of there in 2 Corinthians, and to be able to behold his God in such a way. And again, how how much of a contrast can we have than what he says there again back in verse 1 about the transgression of the wicked, and then to go to the complete polar opposite of the God who displays this love as stated in mercy. This God who is righteous, this one who is faithful, and also his judgment, his justice, it can be translated. This is why when we look at passages such as Psalm 36 and elsewhere in the Scripture, not just in the Psalms, but when we say turn back to the book of Exodus when when Moses says to God, show me thy glory. And what does God do? He, He gives a verbal picture of his glory as he passes by Moses when he protects Moses by placing his hand over that cleft of the rock where Moses would be and God then would remove his hand and as it says there, Moses would see the back part of God, whatever that meant. But as God would pass by, what would, what would he do? He would declare his glory to Moses. One, one of the wonderful things that my family and I, a couple nights ago, uh, we were sitting down at the table and right after supper, uh, we had a devotional time. And I, I receive a, a, if you want to call it a little booklet every quarter called the Free Grace Broadcaster uh, from a church down in Florida. And the subject for the quarter is the subject of heaven. And what they do is they take past sermons or, or writings of men such as Charles Haddon Spurgeon, John Gill, and others. Uh, uh, George Mueller has been in there on, on the subject of prayer in the past. But they take those subjects and they give portions of either their messages or their writings in in a small booklet of about maybe 42, 45 pages in length. And again, being the subject of heaven, I read a just a little four-page uh, statement that was uh, given in there regarding the subject of heaven. And the author, who is actually a man that's alive right now by the name of Paul Helm, uh, wrote on the fact that we can, we can rejoice in that heaven itself being the home of God is where God is on his full display of glory. Now we have again but glimpses right now of God's glory. But when you think about the subject of home, and Brother Helm was dealing with this, when when you go to anybody's home, you are seeing them for who they are. Now, again, we come to church, we're all dressed up. Now, I assume not everybody in here, some people do, and that's fine, but I don't think everybody uh, every, every day in their home is dressing up in church clothing. I, I would dare say many of you probably wear maybe jeans and T-shirts and, and jeans in the condition that you probably wouldn't want to wear in a public setting. Uh, uh, again, or, or wherever it is may be, it might have grease stains all over them. You have no problem with that. Like Brother Craig working on cars, he'd have no problem wearing a pair of jeans like that at his house. Why? That's who he is. And dear ones, we are all the way we are in our home because why? We let down our guard. We reveal who we are in our homes. We're comfortable there with the people that we live with, Hopefully. How much so with God? When when we read again in that wonderful book of the Revelation, 
God is on full display to those who are around his throne. Is it any wonder why it says there that they are praising him continually? How can we grow tired of the most majestic, luminous, glorious being that there is? He is beyond the comprehension of man. Now, you think about the the comprehensive ability of mankind, and it it is tremendous. I I think about this frequently with all that that is invented in the world, all this technology that keeps not just being improved but coming out. It seems like on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, uh, all, all that we get to enjoy... And I know even some of you have talked with me about this. Uh, I know like my mother, who's going to be 87 in January, just the different things that when she was a child compared to now, that nobody thought about these things. And if they did, it was science fiction to them. I I remember having that conversation as as a boy because I I really, when I was a, uh, especially as a, a teenager in high school, I used to love reading science fiction uh, the stuff that she read when she was a teenager regarding a, a shuttle that took people outside of the earth, that was, again, nobody believed that would ever happen, but guess what? We have it now. That's why when JFK announced that they were going to put a man on the moon, that blew people's minds away when he, when he said that. They never fathomed that man would ever be able to leave the earth, let alone go to its satellite and stand on it. But yet here we are. We have talk about trying to colonize Mars now. If that occurs, if the Lord tarries, you know what's going to be the next thing that man comprehends, trying to find another inhabitable planet to go to. They're always in search of those things. And dear ones, I say all that to say this. You think about God's statements back in the book of Genesis when it came to the Tower of Babel. What did God say? That if these people are allowed to continue doing what they're doing, nothing will be impossible for them. That's part of the image bearing of God in mankind. The capacity to improve and invent. And so thus God confuses the language to stop them from that task. And again, I say that to say this, if man has the ability to comprehend and bring about the things he thinks on, and yet we are only getting a glimpse of what God is like now, what is it going to be like for us when we first see him? And what is it going to be like through all of eternity? It's going to be nothing but a God of wonders that we gaze upon. I remember uh, uh, talking, actually, with this gentleman. Uh, maybe many of you have heard of him, Brother Paul Washer. Um, he, he's a friend of Brother Don Curran, who, who has been here. And I met Brother Paul many, many years ago. I think it was back in 2006 when I flew down from Maine down to Alabama uh, and, and went to a conference down there uh, right in Tuscumbia. Uh, and, and met with Brother Paul, and we just chatted for a very short time because he's a very busy man, and even more so then than he is now. Uh, but he, he was writing uh, about the gospel and how in glory, one of the aspects that we see in the scripture is there is going to be an ongoing amazement with the fact that God redeemed man. 
And we are going to be learning throughout eternity. Now, some people might say, well, I learn all the time now. And probably that's a little disheartening to the younger crowd that's uh, dealing with school or is on break right now. But you know what? All of the sorrows, all of, all of the frustration and all of that that goes along with education here on this earth, that's going to disappear because you are going to be so fully involved in wanting to know God, there's going to be no obstacle to knowing him. Except this, he is still God and we are still the creature. That's why we're going to learn. Here we see that as David would pen these wonderful words, he would just be caught up in amazement to think upon the God who is so different than the wicked. We, we look, first of all, at that word mercy. And as I said, it's the same word that we find in verse 7, loving kindness. What is it? That It is that word that you, if you have done any sort of study whatsoever in the scripture regarding the word love in the Hebrew, it's the word hesed or hesed as a lot of as English speaking people typically say. We would look at it, H-E-S-E-D is the transliteration of the Hebrew word. What is that? Literally translated, it is the loyal love of God. One of the remarkable chapters of our Bible is Genesis chapter number 24 where Abraham sent his servant to go and find a bride for his son, Isaac. That word hesed is used more in that one chapter of the Bible than anywhere else. And again, it's a constant reminder from the mouth of the servant about God's loyal love to Abraham, his master. This is the word David uses here, both in verse 5 and in verse 7. The word mercy and loving kindness is literally God's loyal love. Some translations use the word steadfast love. What does that mean? It is a love that never changes. It is permanent. It's what, and again, Pastor Gray frequently reminds us of out of the book of Romans, chapter number 8. What shall separate us from the love of God? And we have that listing there. And, and it's just one thing after another, after another, after another that Paul lists out. And he's saying, what? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. It's not because of us. It's because of him. His steadfast love. It's as we read elsewhere in the Psalms later on, as, as the people of God would, would remember what God has done, they would cry out, your loyal love endures forever. Our translation, I believe it uses, thy mercy endures. It's the word hesed, your steadfast love, O God, endures forever. Towards whom? Towards your people. Is it any wonder why David would be so enraptured with this God? Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. It is so high, it is incomprehensible. And again, that is why so many authors, so many hymn writers, so many people that deal with the devotional writings, again, the thoughts that are brought out, preachers as they proclaim these words, as again, I'm doing with you tonight, there is no earthly way that we can fathom the depth and the height of the love of God for mankind. Why? It is who he is. 
It's as John talks about in that first epistle of John. It says, God is what? Love. That is an amazing statement when you think about it, dear ones. Now, we know that God is holy, but you know what the scripture never says? It never says God is holiness. We know that God is a God of what? Justice. We know that he is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace, but it never says God is grace. God is mercy. But we do read this statement, God is love. It never says God is loving. It says God is love. This is a statement of the essence of our God. This is why it was amazing to the people there when John would pen those words down. During that era, this concept of a being who would condescend to become man, to die for his people, this was foolishness. And I believe I had said this a few months ago to you, that during the time of the early church in the late uh, first century and then on into the second century in the 100s, the Romans despised this idea of a crucified God so much that they actually would have the caricature of a donkey, uh, the head of a donkey on the body of a man hanging from a cross and having the worshipers around there bowing down to him. It was, again, as Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, it was utter foolishness. It's where we get our word moron from. It was moronic to these people, but not to the child of God. Because God had been displaying this steadfast love since the very beginning when sin entered into the world through the choice of Adam and Eve. And we read it there in Genesis chapter 3 that who was it that covered the man and the woman? It was God. Now they had attempted to, didn't work. As it says there, they attempted to sew fig leaves together. But what did God do when he, even after pronouncing the curse upon the woman and the man, it says there that he took the skins of animals. And what did he do? He clothed them. What had God just promised to them when he was speaking to the woman or to the serpent? said, there's going to be one that comes and you're going to bruise his what? His heel. But he is going to do what to you? He's going to crush your head. Even in the midst of statements of condemnation, what is God doing? He's giving hope. Why? It's because he loves mankind. And then he gives a picture by shedding the blood of an animal and then clothing the man and the woman who had just sinned against him. This is why David would say, Thy mercy, thy love, O Lord, is in the heavens. I don't have a doubt in my mind that Adam and Eve thought, This is it, we're done for. They had tried to hide. They thought for sure that as long as they avoided God, they were going to be fine. Not so. And then they were caught, and he confronts them. And what had God told the man, and no doubt the man had said to the woman, 
that the day that thou eatest thereof, what's going to happen? You will surely die. The thing that we understand regarding that statement is this. God had promised, and I have no doubt again that Adam understood somewhat what God was talking about. It literally means in dying you will die. So in other words, you, when you enter into sin, Adam, if you choose that path, you will die at that point, but you will continue to die. And dear ones, we understand that. How many of you are still looking the way you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years, last year? No. It's the process of death working in us. That's the curse. And God promises man in sin will die. But he comes along and says, that need not be the eternal case of that person. Thus, he would give that wonderful promise in Genesis 3.15, he will crush your head. The mercy of the Lord is in the heavens. But then David goes on and says, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. This is again the wonder of our God that he doesn't change. It's a frightening prospect, as I even alluded to this morning, when you think of going from one administration to the next, and this has been the case worldwide for centuries, that when you have somebody that is different than the one coming on, or the one coming on is vastly different than the one previous, people get a little worried, what's it going to be like? Isaiah experienced that. When you read in Isaiah 6, who, who had just died? King Uzziah. Imagine this, dear ones. For 52 years, a righteous king ruled in Judah. Now he was gone. The natural thought is going to be, who's going to take his place? And what's he going to be like? They knew there were going to be changes. And, and again, someone like the caliber of Isaiah, a prophet of God who was faithful to the Lord, himself was concerned about this. And thus God gives him that wonderful vision of seeing himself high and lifted up where his train filled the temple. And he would hear those words, holy, 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 from that angelic host singing to one another, the whole earth is full of his glory. And yet he realized he was a sinner. But this is one thing we understand, dear ones, throughout the pages of this holy book, we see God declaring himself the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that God who is declared is the one that the writer in Hebrews would say, this is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because he is faithful. I was just reading that again and studying for the message that I gave you this morning. We have also the statements there in 1 Timothy where when we are not faithful to him, guess what? He abides faithful. He remains faithful. We read in the book of Malachi, because of the fact God does not change, ye sons of Jacob, you're not consumed. If he was changeable, he would have wiped them out a long time ago. But he is faithful. He's faithful to his people, first of all, and he's also faithful to his word. You think about that. Dear ones, when we come to the pages of this book, we can trust it because of the God who gives it to us. He doesn't change. 
He doesn't say one day, well, this is what I mean here, but then the next day use the same language, but it means something else. No. It means what it says. Why? Because God said it. When we read the words throughout the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, why would that statement be given? First of all, to show that it is coming from God and it has his authority behind it. But number two, what is said has the rock hard assurance that it will come to pass. Why? It came from God. And here David says, thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. It's something God's people can marvel at and rejoice in, that we have a God who is faithful to himself, his word, and his people. And then in verse number six, we see the next statement of thy righteousness is like the great mountains, and we love that. This speaks about his goodness, his doing of right, that ultimately he is the standard and that standard of righteousness is displayed in what he does. It's as the psalmist says that thou art good and thou doest good. Why does God do good? It's because he is good. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. I think of this when it comes to passages like that. You think of the Matterhorn over in Switzerland. Numerous paintings have been made of this majestic mountain. And you think there is nothing that could ever move it. All of the earth equipment in the world could not budge this thing one small fraction of an inch. And that's the picture that David wants to portray. That the righteousness of God never, never changes. Just as he is faithful in his righteousness, he remains the same. That righteousness that was put on display when his son would go to a Roman cross and die there and be buried and rise three days later from the dead, showing that he has conquered death and hell and that man need not be bound by sin any longer. It is that righteousness that David says here is what? It is like the great mountains. You can't put into words the beauty that you see there. I, I don't know about you, but I love on my, my laptop computer, both here at the office and at home, uh, I have what is the, and prob- maybe some of you have this on yours, uh, Bing has a daily wallpaper that they put out. And there are numerous examples of mountain ranges or even a single mountain that they give a picture of. Yesterday, they, they actually had a picture, and, and maybe some of you saw this. They had a picture of a mountain uh, over in Germany. And I believe it was, it, they called it part of the Ore, O-R-E, mountains. And I'm assuming that these mountains have been mined, thus the title. But it had a picture of the sun with a, with, if you want to call it an aura around it, as it was being reflected off of the peak of that one mountain. And that was just one mountain. And it takes your breath away when you see this. But then you look at, again, a Matterhorn or a Mount Everest or the Rockies. It just takes your breath away. And then you realize 
God made those. And David uses those mountains as an example of the righteousness of God. Now, if you ever want to do a study on the righteousness of God, you need to look no further than Romans chapter 1. God's righteousness is on display when he judges sin. And no more so than when you read the Gospels and you see a crucified Savior. God's righteousness is so majestic and sure that his son who would take on human flesh would be crucified and bear the wrath of his father. Why? His righteousness and justice demanded it. It demanded punishment for sin. Can we not then also wonder and adore this God whose righteousness is like the mountains? We can't put it into words. All of the nuances, all of the what we would call steadfastness of those mountains, all of the different aspects of those mountains, here David uses those words that your righteousness is like. He couldn't think of anything more grand. And we see here in verse number 6, a fourth attribute given, thy judgments are a great deep. We can also supply the word your justice. Are we thankful that we have a God of justice? Sin will not win the day. Sin has been punished on the cross and ultimately it will be eradicated when our God is seated on his throne in glory forever. We have our Lord Jesus Christ to thank for that, dear ones. To know that we are going to be around that throne of grace in heaven, rejoicing before Him, in Him, because His justice has been satisfied. I, I love how David elsewhere says that God's mercy and justice have kissed one another. They've kissed one another. That's another wonderful picture of God's justice has been satisfied in his son, Jesus Christ. Now we begin to still imagine more why Christ is adored as he is in heaven. I, I remember... And many of you, uh, how, ma how many of you when the, the uh, museum and art gallery on campus was open, how many of you had been in there? Can I see your hands? Yeah, mo a lot of us in here. Uh, some have not, but th there, there used to be a just, my, my favorite painting in the entire building, bar none, you saw as soon as you walked in there. And I'd actually gotten a copy of this from my wife, you know how they used to do the, the special frames and... <clears throat> And, and, and we had that hanging up on our wall. Well, the, 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 I think it was when we moved from here up to Maine, it was one of the few items that actually got broken in the move. Uh, and we, kept the, we had kept the picture for a long time, and something had happened it where we had to, we had to eventually just throw it out. 
but it was the picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ. But it was given from a completely different perspective than other painters had ever done before. Typically, you know, with the ascension, such as in the, the, the uh, war memorial, it has a picture of where the disciples are on the ground and it shows Christ going up and then the clouds parting as he's looking up. And so we have the perspective in that painting of looking up. Well, this one had a perspective from heaven when he was coming. And it showed where he had this just wonderful expression on his face as he would enter back into that third heaven. And it showed the angels encircling that area as Christ would come back through and they would all be gazing on him in what we would use the word rapture. Because now the God-man was back. Before... He was God. Now it's the God-man. And they look upon him with wonder, with awe, and as I said a few moments ago, with rapture. Why? Because here is the one that took our place and satisfied the justice of God. As David says here, thy judgments are a great deep. They cannot be plumbed. It's like that Marianas Trench over near the Philippine Islands, supposedly the deepest place on the earth. And very few people have been to the bottom of it. They, they've had, and, and this was something I didn't know up until a number of, a few years ago, there, there were, there were uh, two military individuals on the behest of the Navy that actually took a submersible and went right down to the bottom of that thing, and it took them hours to get there. It's like six or seven miles down. And here they are, the first people to ever put put themselves down and now they didn't get out of this thing obviously but it was it was so dark and they knew it was going to be they had these massive lamps on the outside of this two man submarine but the silt kicked up so much they never were able to see anything and here, I guess, a few years ago, there was actually another expedition where some, some uh, uh, one or two other people went down to the bottom of that. And uh, again, the, the wonder of man's inventions showed up where they actually found a plastic bag at the bottom of that thing. But yet, we read of scientists talking about, we know more about our solar system and the universe than we do about the oceans of the earth. There are some that have even conjectured we know less than 3% about our own planet's water and what is under it. Now you think about that. And here David says that your judgments are a great deep. You can't get to the bottom. You can't understand. This justice of God and his ways and how he performs, what he performs at his behest is beyond man's ability to know. And again, we can get little glimpses, but to fully understand it, David says it's impossible. It's like what we read in Psalm 139. 
How vast are the sum of your thoughts? They're beyond count. It's like the sands of the seashore and attempting to try to count every grain. It cannot be done. He compares God to that. And here he says that your justice, your judgments are a great deep. But he he ends with this. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. What's he doing? He's gearing us up again for that wonderful topic of the love of God. Because he says there in verse 7, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. We would expect in hearing about the justice of God, we best be walking as if we were on eggshells. We better be careful with him. But that's not what we read here. Even with God's justice, we read that God, O Lord, Yahweh, thou preservest man and beast. Who does the preserving? God does. You mean this God who was offended at the sin of man? Yes. This God who proclaims and pronounces judgment for that sin? Yes. We would never expect that from a human ruler. Again, we have multiple examples throughout human history of men and women who when their judgments were broken, they lost their life. But what do we see God doing? He's preserving them. Those that have been ravaged by sin, God preserves them, man and beast. Why? Because again... Verse 7 tells us, how excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. It's because God is love. Dear ones, one of the reasons why we can approach our God in prayer is because he is a God of love. He is not like Allah that the Muslim worships, who doesn't know if he could ever approach this one, lest he be destroyed in doing so. No. This most high God that Daniel speaks of bids us come. He encourages us like a father to his children. Come and talk to me. Lay your burdens at my feet. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. That which troubles your soul, give it to the one who can handle that care and concern. Because he cares for you. It's his loving kindness, his steadfast love, because he is love. Therefore, because of this, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Dear ones, I'm going to make this last closing statement. You don't trust somebody that you don't know if they love you or not. Why? What's to motivate them to remain the same, to keep their word? Nothing. We have here from the mouth of David and his pen what the New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ is full of grace and mercy. Thus, we can come to him in times of need, knowing he hears us because he is love. We can trust him. We can flee to him. He is that rock. He is that fortress. We can 
receive shelter under his wings. And we can trust him while we do so. This is why we have a great God of wonders. He is a God who is worthy of our praise. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Lord, again, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we as a people approach you and know that you are God. And that as God, you are holy, you are just, you are righteous, you are faithful, you are love. And we adore you for it. Oh, our God, I ask for this congregation tonight and for myself that we would be a people that are more enthralled with who you are and less distracted by the cares of this world. God, we pray that our souls would be so knit to yours that we would not be satisfied, as we even heard last week on the husks of this world and what the swine would eat. But that, Lord, we would be as David, that we would understand and know full contentment at joy in your presence alone. Blessed Spirit, this is our prayer tonight. Cause us to have a deeper yearning to know our God and to love him. We pray in Christ's precious name.